0: You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US economics and trade editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
0: This week, we're going to get a report from the trenches of the US-China trade war.
1: We're going to speak with Yuan Yang. She is the China tech correspondent for the Financial Times, and she's based in Beijing. You might remember Yuan from episode 38 on ZTE.
0: Yuan, hello. Hi, it's great to be here.
2: It's great to have you back. First question, what is Huawei? So Huawei is the world's biggest telecoms equipment manufacturer. That means it makes many of the bits that go into creating the physical infrastructure behind the internet and behind our mobile networks. And the slight complication is it's a Chinese company. Okay, before we get into those complications, have you been to the headquarters? What what, what are they like? Uh, I have flown to Huawei maybe... I think eight times in the first half of this year. Um, it's a four-hour flight from Beijing to Shenzhen. And they have a huge campus um, in in Shenzhen, which is the southern Chinese city just opposite Hong Kong. Um, one of their most amazing campuses is basically a, a fever dream of the chief executive, Ren Zhengfei. Mr. Ren is really into European architecture, so it's probably the only place in the world you can see Greek sculptures alongside you know, Gothic German-style buildings, alongside French palaces, all in this one big campus that is called European. So it's the Chinese imagination of what European is. Slightly different to the American imagination of what European is, although you know, maybe no less manic. <laughs> I'm
1: going to disagree a little. I think we've tried to replicate that at, at Epcot Center at Disney World. So, But my <laughs> sense is it sounds a little bit different than the Shenzhen version.
2: Okay, to the complications then, what are they? Mm. So as I said, Huawei is the world's biggest telecoms equipment manufacturer. And as we know, the internet connects everything across the the world by routing different messages across different routes. So if I send Chad an email from Beijing to D.C., it's not going to go zip magically straight from Beijing to D.C. It's going to go via a number of intermediary places like maybe Japan or even the Philippines, get it routed to the west coast of the U.S. and through to D.C. And as that message passes through different parts of the hardware of the internet, it's going to pass through different manufacturers' equipment. It could be Cisco equipment, it could be Huawei equipment, Ericsson equipment, and so on. So that means that if any one country decides to use Huawei in its telecoms infrastructure, then that is going to affect how messages from across the world are passed along, because all parts of the internet are interconnected. And The complication of Huawei being Chinese is that we've seen in the last year, especially the U.S. government building a case, trying to build a case against Huawei as a national security concern. The accusation against Huawei that the U.S. has is that Huawei's equipment is liable for uh, spying on by Beijing, that Beijing could potentially uh, tell Huawei to basically surveil and eavesdrop on the conversations and messages passing through its equipment and hand them to the government. And as a result of that, that there is a reason not to include Huawei in the rollout of our next generation 5G mobile telecoms infrastructure.
1: So are there any publicly available reasons to think that, some, that there might be some truth behind these accusations?
2: Mm. Well, often uh, people cite the national intelligence law, which compels Chinese companies to aid Beijing with any uh, investigations on national intelligence grounds. I mean, on the face of it, the national intelligence law is not that different from similar laws in, in the UK and the US. The main difference, I think, in the Chinese context is that there is no transparent legal procedure for the government to get warrants in order to search customer data. And that is a is a big problem for companies, including privately-owned companies, as Huawei says it is, to show evidence that they actually aren't susceptible to these kinds of um, requests for data, because even if there was a request for government data, then it would not be tracked in any way that they can show. Probably the most high-profile example of an alleged espionage attack was the African Union headquarters in Ethiopia. Some African Union officials alleged that the African Union building in Addis, which was kitted out by ZT and Huawei, was spied on by the Chinese government, and their messages were surveilled and sent back to Beijing en masse. And because their building was equipped by, by Huawei, there's the further question, how much was that company involved in that espionage? This story is very, very complex, because the African Union actually denies that any espionage did happen. So there are there are some, you know, officials who say that it did, and of course Huawei uh, denies any wrongdoing.
1: On trade talks, we've spoken a lot about the complicated different types of companies that are operating in China. As one example, sometimes we've got these big state-owned enterprises that receive a lot of subsidies and they're they're run by the government, and yet at other times firms are are private, profit-maximizing firms, much like you might have in the United States or elsewhere. What do we know about Huawei's ownership structure?
2: So Huawei is registered as a privately owned company. Its shareholding structure is extremely obscure. It says that it's owned by its employees. So it's kind of in that sense a cooperative, although in practice that the employees don't have very much of a say in most important decisions. Um, they're made mostly by the board um, of Huawei. There have always been rumors that there are some mysterious big shareholder behind Huawei. But because of the way that Huawei is legally uh, constructed, we can't prove that just by looking at legal registries um, in China. Um, In fact, the only thing that we have to go on is that Huawei's own company registry that it it holds in a massive air-conditioned room um, of paper records of its 80,000 or so employees who hold sh- uh, these virtual shares in the company.
0: Let, let's go a bit broader then. There are lots of folks in Congress who are just very upset with Huawei.
2: Why? What's, what's the laundry list of reasons? Sure. Well, this is a big question. So there are multiple allegations here outstanding against Huawei. Um, um, let's talk about the main four and and the first is that huawei is alleged to have violated sanctions against iran by exporting u.s origin technology to iran and that allegation is as you know the subject of a court case that is the reason for huawei's uh, cfo um being detained right now as we speak in vancouver so that's that's you know that's one that's one whole thing and that's I've heard that described as a you know, purely criminal procedure, which in theory it, it uh, should be, but has been pulled by President Trump into the trade war by the way that Trump talks about Meng Wanzhou's arrest and potential release in conjunction with talking about the trade talks, and that complicates things. But anyway, that sh- in theory sh- should be allegation number one. Number two, I suppose, are the outstanding also criminal allegations about IP theft, um, that Huawei is alleged to have stolen uh, IP from American companies such as T-Mobile, you know, over the last few decades, and those those issues have been um, you know debated in courts both in China and and the U.S. for quite a long time now. Thirdly, this is more of a broadly economic I- issue, which is that Huawei participates um, allegedly in unfair trade practices because of its big government subsidies in China. And thinking about the context in China, Huawei is by far the most successful international tech company in China when it comes to uh, hardware. And even if you match Huawei against companies, you know, the big-name companies like Alibaba or Tencent, um, Huawei has over half its revenues coming from outside of China. It's for the telecoms manufacturers and carriers that it it supplies in over 180 countries across the world. it's, It's an important brand and it's an important supplier for them. So it has done a very good job of doing that. And so it's seen as a national champion at home. And as both the national champion as and a tech company, it receives subsidies from the Chinese government. That's for sure. So that's number three. But I think the biggest one of them all is what we first talked about, which is the cybersecurity concern and national security concern over Huawei that it could be used to spy on American citizens' communications.
0: I've just finished reading a book by Paul Bluestein called, called Schism. Uh, in which he points out that the NSA was was basically found to be trying to do some of the stuff that that the US is now accusing
2: Huawei of doing. W- what do
0: you think of that parallel?
2: Yeah, I mean, to be frank, I've been very frustrated by a lot of the Western media coverage of Huawei, because the threat of cyber espionage, um, as you say, Samaya, is not purely about Chinese government, is also about the US government, it's about all governments with the technical capacity to su- surveil their own citizens and, and foreign nationals of, of security interest. And I'm glad that... There is a parallel being drawn to what the U.S. has has done with the NSA, with PRISM, um, through the Snowden attacks, because earlier we discussed legal transparency and how that's a protection against the worst successes of of governments on spying on the citizens. There was no transparency in the NSA's PRISM um, project until the Snowden leaks. So in a way, there is a hypocrisy around this. I think the bigger issue is what the US government could even in theory achieve by blocking Huawei out from 5G networks. Say the administration was able to convince all of its allies, as it's been trying very hard to do, to block Huawei from building out their systems. I mean, they've already won the argument in some ways in countries like Australia, which have already decided to shut Huawei out. And then there are other countries like the UK, Germany, France, who are kind of teetering around their decision right now. But let's just assume that everyone said, okay, fine, we're going to do it the US, the US way and shut Huawei out. That would not lead to more secure telecoms for American citizens. And the reason that that's the case is because there are two kinds of uh, ways of compromising a network. And one is through putting intentional malicious backdoors into, into the network. And the second and much more common case is just the equipment manufacturers getting it wrong and we've seen these um slip ups by companies by by Huawei's European and American competitors like Cisco Ericsson and so on over the last 5 years there are so many loopholes so many security holes that a chinese government or any any government could exploit by finding the security hole faster than it's patched and we've seen you know examples of this um Uh, through security disclosures uh, repeatedly, even even, even this year, like huge vulnerabilities being found in, in Cisco routers, for example. So just because the equipment is not being made by a Chinese company doesn't mean the Chinese government can't get into the system. And if the US government were really concerned about security in its telecoms infrastructure, then it would not be just looking at Huawei as a vulnerability. It would be looking and, and regulating across the whole telecoms industry um, because the weakest link is going to be, you know, the unpatched router sitting in a government department somewhere, or it's going to be, you know, an, even a, an employee who's not had the proper training to set you know, two-factor authentication. It's going to be something as simple and and dumb as that, as opposed to, you know, a huge plot by the Chinese government. If you think about what China could spend its money doing, finding the low-lying Fruit in terms of you know bad security practices among government employees or you know, amongst um, the companies that are making that are making telecoms equipment is going to be much more impactful than trying to sneak something into into Huawei equipment.
1: I want to try to make a, an analogy that Trade Talks listeners may be kind of more familiar with, and to try to fit this in. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of trade in between different countries in say agricultural products. So food where, you know, in the United States, we may be very very worried about the standards in another country, but we can test stuff. We don't Mm -hmm. have to test every product, but we can test randomly, you know, to make sure that it's safe and products like what we're talking about here. Is that ever going to be sufficient or is it always going to come down to this issue of, of trust? Is testing ever going to be enough?
2: Yeah. So on the on the most macro way of answering that question, I think there are two issues. There's the there's the human uh, threat and there's the kind of machine threat. And if you're trying to assess um, the security of a technical system, um, that's assessing the kind of the machine threat. And there's a general principle that the more complex the system, then the more difficult it will be to keep an updated assessment of of the threat, um, because. It's not like a toy car that you wind up and then you just set it off to go off on its own. Um, Any uh, network will have lots of inputs. By its nature, it carries messages. They are the input. You don't know how the messages are going to change the system as it passes through them. So it's a dynamic uh, process. It's a dynamic issue. Having said that, though, there are security assessments of of products like Huawei's products that private companies do, and that most notably the UK government has been doing um, since 2010 in what's called the Huawei Oversight Board, which is overseen by the UK in- intelligence agencies. Um, that process is, is extremely in-depth, probably the most fine-grained assessment of Huawei, uh, Huawei's equipment that we have anywhere in the world. And there are, you know it's thrown up a number of problems for Huawei Every year you read the Oversight Board's reports and they get more and more impatient with Huawei's ability to acknowledge and to respond to the faults that it finds. And I think there is a perception among the uh, cybersecurity community, at least in the US, um, that I've heard that Huawei creates problems by being just more sloppy with its code and with its um, engineering processes than it needs to be. So that's the technical threat. But the human threat is uncontrollable. I mean, if you uh, might remember back in 2005, there was a big scandal in in Athens. Um, You can find a lot of writing about this if you just Google the Athens scandal, in which it was found that the prime minister's office was being spied on, and that at the root of this was potentially that the US or the NSA was alleged to have perhaps bribed the employees of the national telcos to aid them. So bribery and getting somebody on the inside... You know, you can have as many locks as possible, but if you're able to bribe the person who has the keys, there is very little that you can do about that. One of the Huawei executives last year said, you know, cybersecurity is not just a technical issue, it's also a geopolitical issue. And I think that's very true. If the U.S. The, I mean, I think the only, only way in which the U.S. could get rid of its national security concerns about Huawei is not through technically assessing Huawei equipment or giving them security reviews, but through there being more trust in the U.S.-China relationship. And so I think that's one deep asymmetry, of course, between how the U.S. or even U.S. citizens might see their own government and how the U.S. sees the Chinese government. Can we talk about what the U.S.,
0: what the Trump administration has been doing to Huawei. So, mm-hmm. at, at its most extreme, what, what's been kind of the most extreme threat that the the Trump administration has made, and, and what's actually in place right
2: now? So, the most extreme threat against Huawei is the entity list sanctions. Uh, so, earlier this year, Huawei was placed on a list um, of entities that uh, U.S. companies cannot export U.S. origin technologies to. And this is extremely crippling for Huawei because not only does Huawei sell to a large part of the world, it also sources from many other countries and it sources in particular vital chips and semiconductors from the U.S. The U.S. is really dominant in the semiconductor supply chain. The U.S. makes certain kinds of high-end chips um, that no other country makes. It designs the kinds, even the software that you need to design chips comes from the U.S. And so if if Huawei's cut off from U.S. suppliers, uh, you know, for for more than a year, and we've had, you know, maybe f- uh, four months at this point, then that would be a death toll for the. Uh, that would be a you know, a fatal blow for the company. So, what's in place now in terms of the the
0: restrictions? Because it wasn't quite that extreme. what, what they ended up going with, right?
2: This is also a really complicated question, and in fact, in, in the aftermath of the announcement of the entity list sanctions, a lot of companies and lawyers were scrambling for a number of weeks to try and figure out what exactly the, the sanctions meant. Um, it turns out that apparently there's a loophole in um, in the way that the, the export controls are written, such that uh, companies like Micron... Uh, first stopped their shipments to Huawei, and then later on resumed them. Um, and that's because if you ship via a third country, then there are different kinds of requirements that apply, um, called de minimis requirements. Um, but those requirements are slightly different from the original requirements, such that some things kind of fall in in the gap. So actually, um, you know, in it's not clear what the original intention. Of President Trump was when he signed the entity list um, sanctions against Huawei, and you know potentially the the original intention may have been itself vague, but the end result has been that around a third of the U.S. semiconductor supply to Huawei um, has has disappeared. But still, you know the remaining two thirds are, are still going. Um, the biggest thing I think that's hanging in the air right now for Huawei is not just the semiconductor suppliers but also uh, software suppliers like Google who supply the and well, who supply the certain services on top of the Android operating system that Huawei phones run and so Huawei is trying very, very very desperately to replace Android within its new generation of phones
1: so one of the potentially really severe implications of all of this is cutting off firms like Huawei from the American supply chain, this bigger issue of, of decoupling um, from access to critical U.S. components. Is there any evidence that you can see so far in China that this is having an impact, that this is actually working to do that kind of thing?
2: I think the major impact that the sanctions against Huawei have had is to shore up the more hawkish comp- part of the you know, of military-industrial complex in China who were all along saying, we need to be self-sufficient in key technologies um, because the U.S. is going to come for us. Now, after the ZTE sanctions that the U.S. put in place last year, that was already in the air. Um, at that time, people were saying, if ZTE is first, maybe Huawei is next. And to be frank, I think you know of all the people I interview in China on the Huawei issue, I think nobody takes the Iran sanctions that seriously as, as the true motive behind Sanctions on, on Huawei, ironically, probably Huawei itself takes them the most seriously because uh, you know, as a as, as a company with with legal responsibilities, it has to. But there is a lot of bad faith right now in in Beijing, um, and and across China about the Trump administration's motives. There's a the narrative that the U.S. is trying to keep China down from technologically ascending to you know to dominance in the world, that Huawei is the most dominant tech company it has worldwide and that's why the US has aimed for Huawei. So if anything it means that people who were all all along saying we need to be self sufficient are now winning the argument in government and in industry. Very big picture
0: I guess there's, there's also been this bigger economic argument, right, which is that the tariffs, the you know, the actions on Huawei, all of this is serving to to weaken the Chinese and maybe make them less excited about this Made in China 2025 mm-hmm. strategy.
2: Is that just a, a public messaging thing, or do you think yeah. actually they really are backtracking on anything? I think it's definitely a, a messaging thing. The government has been telling newspapers and officials not to talk about Made in China uh, the industrial policy uh, as much. Um, but if you think about where the motives for the industrial policy come from, it's precisely because of a security fear that China might be cut off from its supply chains in the event of a tussle with the US or with other key suppliers. And that is exactly what's happening. So I think if the sanctions against Huawei, if the tariffs were being used as a, as a bargaining chip to get China to come to the table... I can I can see how some people might perceive that in Washington as uh, you know we need to stick in order to get get China to the table, but it doesn't appear right now that there is a negotiation table, and especially in the Huawei case, it doesn't appear to me that there is anything that Huawei could do that could change the U.S.'s attitude towards it. You know, if if there's a, a list of demands um, from the U.S. side um, that either impossible, i.e., prove the negative that you are not being compromised by the Chinese government, or they're kind of legally unfeasible, i.e., you know, Huawei cannot unilaterally halt the Meng Wanzhou investigation over Iran sanctions. And so I don't really know, you know, if this were a negotiation and if these threats would be used as part of a negotiation, what is that negotiation? What what can China or what can Huawei even do? On that happy note, <laughs> I think we will will let you go.
0: Um, <laughs> Yuan, thank you so much. Thank you for having me again. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Yuan Yang, who is the China tech correspondent for the Financial Times. Be sure to read everything she writes coming right out of Beijing on what is going on these days in China.
1: Thank you also to Colin Warren, who handles our audio. And this does not influence the content of this episode, but for full transparency, in the past, my employer, the Peterson Institute, did receive financial support from Huawei Technologies. The Peterson Institute ended that relationship in 2018. For more information on Peterson Institute funders and its transparency policy in general, check out the Institute's website. That's www.piie.com.
0: Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Simea Keynes.
1: And I'm at Chad Bown.
0: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks.
0: Because when it comes to episodes with Yuan, two is better than one.
1: I agree.